The Global Pathways podcast with Ray Offenheiser is produced by the Pulte Institute for Global Development, an integral part of the Keough School of Global Affairs at the University of Notre Dame. The Pulte Institute works to address global poverty and inequality through policy, practice, and partnership, and is a catalyst for centers and faculty at Notre Dame to develop interdisciplinary research programs that address today's most pressing global development challenges. Learn more at pulte.nd.edu. Hello, and welcome to the Global Pathways podcast. I'm Ray Offenheiser, and today my guest is Paul O'Brien, the recently appointed Executive Director of Amnesty International USA, or AIUSA, as we'll refer to it this morning. Paul comes to this post at Amnesty after 14 years at Oxfam America, where as Vice President for Policy and Campaigns, he oversaw all of Oxfam's policy, advocacy, and campaigning here in the United States. Since taking the helm of AIUSA in April, Paul has focused on strengthening the organization's ability to maximize its impact in the years and decades to come, and doubling down on its commitment to partner with communities who are struggling to claim their human rights. As he transitioned from Oxfam America to Amnesty, Paul completed a book entitled Power Switch, How Can We Reverse Extreme Inequality? In that book, Paul poses the following provocative question. Is it actually possible that we might emerge from this pandemic with a peaceful global power switch from those who have too much to those who don't have enough? I believe that's a nice framing for our conversation today. And Paul, I'm delighted we could get together for this conversation. Thanks so much for being here. Congratulations on your new book, as well as your transition from Oxfam to now leading AIUSA. Thanks, Ray. It's great to be here. So, Paul, let's jump right in. And I want to begin by asking maybe just a broad question. Why did you use the term power switch as the title of your your recently released book? What were you actually trying to signal to potential readers? Really two things. First, that we probably should be talking more about power and understanding it better. It's the various ways that it shows up in our lives. It is perhaps the most important currency that activists need to get their heads around if we're going to be effective in the years to come. And the second reason was because from what I could see from my perch, we were about to witness this year and in the next couple of years, potentially a massive change in who has power and who gets power that could be very good for our world. And I wanted to get into that a bit. That's the sense I had was your book feels to some degree like a call, both a call to action and perhaps a playbook for activists who want to really use the current crisis to drive significant change. Was that really what you were after? Is that your intent? Yeah, that's that's basically it. So you seem to be saying we shouldn't miss this opportunity. Too much is at stake in the current moment. So what is it at stake from your perspective? In other words, let's take a look at the big picture. What are you what are you imagining? What's the change we we need if we have this new power more equally distributed. At first I want to start by saying what we how we came into the moment because I think as a group of activists particularly development activists who came into the moment we we saw our task pretty much as sort of an empowerment task which was we were going to go out there in the world and try and make sure that the people we sought to serve and be relevant to got more power. But what our sector struggled with was that there were certain types of power that no matter how hard we worked to empower certain folks, if we didn't take other kinds of power away, we were going to end up with not having the impact we wanted to have. And I think what we came into this crisis realizing was that certain forms of economic power and political power 
had become so entrenched in a small number of people that empowerment work wasn't working anymore. And that was part of the crisis. And it was part of the reason why the pandemic had such devastating effects. And the economic inequality crisis was being experienced so deeply. Political authoritarians in countries around the world were taking more and more space away from activists. So I felt we came into this moment where a smaller and smaller group of unaccountable political and economic elites were making it impossible for our world to allow the people that we cared about to gain more power. The thing that I think was interesting is that in these kinds of crises, everything gets thrown up in the air, there's lots of disruption. And so the question I asked was, okay, is this the moment to disrupt that hold on power that those economic and political elites in the United States and in countries around the world, is this the moment to disrupt it? And I came away thinking, yes, it is. And I laid out the argument for how we could actually reverse some of that power. Does that make sense? Yeah. And let's stay with the power question for a moment. It's this issue of who has power and what kind of power do they have? Where do they have it? And how do they exercise? I think it's a really interesting discussion that we don't often have. And to some degree, it sounds like you were thinking along the lines of, say, John Gaventa, who's kind of used this power cube kind of metaphor to kind of, in some ways, help us get into that discussion. So, you know, power is a big word. Where have the activists succeeded within the sort of power cube, if we can use the metaphor? Where have activists perhaps been absent in terms of places and spaces within that sort of universe of potential opportunity? What tables have we not been at? Or where, where did we have to take away power and right. occupy space within that cube? Well, let, let me start with the negative side of it and then and maybe turn to the positive. On the negative side, I remember conversations you and I used to have, Ray, and it helped me in some of, of the thinking I was doing around the economic model that we were experiencing in a lot of countries, because a lot of the work. I was doing as a development activist and now as an economic and social rights, somebody who cares about them, was about trying to understand why so much control over resources was in fewer and fewer hands. And essentially, what I came away with is that pretty much from the Reagan era on, and not just the Reagan impact in the United States, but on the global economy with structural adjustment, with the idea that government is a bad thing for countries around the world. And what we want to do is free up the constraints on markets. That was essentially the Reagan philosophy. It was laissez-faire extremism in economics that took away the social safety nets and the opportunities that people had to get decent healthcare and education to lift themselves out of poverty. I think that was essentially the model that was being driven by the Milton Friedman School of Economic Thinking and the Reagan School of Politics. What happened as a consequence of that is more and more economic power was grabbed by both those who were rich enough to allow their wealth to accumulate. And I'm thinking of, you know, the writings of Piketty and others who showed how once you've got wealth, accumulation is easy. But if you don't have it in this economic model, it's very hard to break through. But also just the larger sort of schools of thought that drove the thinking of the IMF and the World Bank and so on. You had these economic elites that were getting wealthier. You had corporations who were able to play the tax game and they were able to accumulate power. And we ended up with this situation going into this crisis where Oxfam spent a lot of time over the last decade educating folks on how a smaller and smaller number of people controlled more and more of the global economy. 
once you understand the kind of thinking that John Gaventa and others are doing, and you realize that we've got to be able to translate these into understanding the power that comes with money, then what we recognize about the economic transformation that has happened, the very bad economic transformation of a smaller number of people having more and more of the resources, is that it's not just money that they have. It's not just the ability to buy a second house or a fancy yacht or, or a third airplane. It's their ability to control currencies. It's their ability to control electoral outcomes and to distort our individual political voice. Essentially, it's their ability to accumulate more and more power in fewer and fewer hands. So what the Gaventa School of Thought and hopefully what the Oxfam and, and I hope the Amnesty School of Thinking is around this is that the first task is to name the power that goes along with this economic distortion and with the political distortions. Start talking about who has too much power and who doesn't have enough. And once you get there, then you can ask, what would a more healthy world look like in terms of these actors having less power and the rest of us having more? And at the heart, I think, of your, I think of your concern is what is the role of government and how do we define freedom? Because I think for the neoconservative narrative, which I think you were taking us down that road a little bit, the state is, a, is totally coercive. That it, therefore, it is the enemy of all things good and of my freedom. And it tends to kind of eliminate the idea that anybody has an obligation to another. In other words, my freedom ends where yours begins. It seems to eliminate that entirely and invalidate the role of the state. And to some degree, I think this, I think there's an interesting question about beyond power, to what degree does the narrative have to be dismantled and discredited as part of the project? In other words, it's one thing to understand power and its dynamics, but to some degree, we've all fallen into this sort of belief in this narrative We've been persuaded it should be successful, but it's effectively not been successful. We're not telling ourselves that often enough and with enough sort of evidence. I don't know if that's sort of consistent with your, your, your argument. Totally consistent and couldn't agree more. I actually think it's really useful to translate what you just said into a very explicit conversation around power and the role of the state in making sure that people have the right kinds of power to achieve what they ought to be able to achieve in a healthy society. So you're describing in, in, in the book, the activist community, both domestically and internationally, is going through significant change. And the power switch metaphor, obviously, is, is sort of signaling that that's necessary. But do you think that change is happening broadly within sort of activist communities globally? Yep, very much so. And both crisis and opportunity for traditional activist organizations, including the one that I just left, Oxfam, and the one that I've just had the privilege to join, Amnesty. Both those organizations grew up and became powerful during a period of time where organized activism started in a relatively small number of northern environments where the task of activism was to inspire engagement from others in a sort of a, a center out way. You came up with plans, you did your best to amplify and capture imaginations with your activist strategies to get as many people as possible to buy in. Now, I will say that Amnesty, right from the get-go, was a membership-driven organization where the actions of groups around the world, and in my case, the United States, shaped the identity. But the core of the idea came originally from a center-out approach. This is the mandate. This is what we work on. This is what we need you to do. 
what's happening with activism now around the world, and it's partly how youth are showing up, how digital and social media realities are changing things, it's less a sort of a center out broadcast type of challenge. And it's more about a dialogue between folks who are on the front lines and wanting to deliver impact and are looking for some kinds of help, but they're not actually looking for prescriptive guidance. They're looking for engagement. And that has drastically changed what it means to be relevant to activists if you are an organized institution with the kind of history that both of our organizations had. So we're trying to do a lot more. I think all of these organizations are trying to do a lot more listening and adaptive work now and less broadcast and prescriptive work. I think it's also maybe part of a kind of rethinking the history of colonization and of the role of international aid and kind of being part of a post-colonial project, if I can put it that way. What can you say about how organizations like Amnesty or Oxfam are thinking about decolonizing their practice and their ways of working and so forth? How is that playing itself out in the way these organizations are thinking internally and deconstructing their work or redefining priorities and so forth? For sure. So if I could just go back to this sort of distinction of two types of power, like empowerment work and creating energy in the world versus the more sort of zero-sum type of power as control, where you see where too much power sits and you want to take it away. I think one of the critiques of international development, and at some level the international human rights movement, is that the empowerment side of it, like who gets to decide who else is empowered, was happening in a way that mirrored the colonial enterprise, meaning that it was former colonial powers or current colonial powers at at the time who were determining, okay, not only are we going to engage in a colonial extractive dominant sort of relationship with the countries, but now we're going to help them. We're going to export these ideas like development and human rights. We're going to empower them to be more like us. And so our own sector is going through the very same critique that the more economically extractive models of colonialism and political models went through, which is who made you the decider on what our value systems were going to be and what our development goals were going to be? And so our sector is now asking the question, well, hold on, if you are serious about equalizing power, then who is at the core of the decision making model that determines what these institutions do in the first place? And what is happening to particularly globally networked movement builders, which is something that both Oxfam and Amnesty share in common, is that we are trying to get to become genuinely equal movements of distributed power across the world, where just because you sit in Oxford or London or Washington, you don't have a greater say over the future of the movement than if you sit in a context which we might have viewed as the target of our work 20 years ago. There's a great deal of self-reflection going on within the larger organizations about how to redefine the way they're relating to constituencies. Is that causing a pause in the activist work itself, or are people sort of able to kind of build this new kind of institutional apparatus while they're also actively challenging power? In other words, there's two rather large, complicated projects there. That's exactly right. And yes, it's causing a pause. A lot of folks would say that that pause is absolutely essential. There is a much greater demand on the idea of integrity now and in the sense of you need to be the change you want to see in the world. You need to reflect internally the values you seek to export to others externally. And that is absolutely essential. 
because there's no space for hypocrisy anymore where you say one thing and do another. But I think we also need an honest conversation that when you are trying to have both internal integrity and external impact, you're going to move at a different pace. And it is going to create pauses. And it is going to perhaps have an impact on how fast or how deeply you can turn to external work. Now, that's actually fundamentally essential that we do take those pauses. But we need to be honest about the cost and benefit choices that we're making as we do so. Those are challenging arguments to have, particularly as we build internal trust across our networks and within our organizations that we're committed to the same tasks, particularly against the background of it's not just institutional privilege that these organizations have had, meaning somehow we became the self-declared authors of global network movement building, but there's individual privilege within those organizations and histories of individual privilege that each of the actors brings into those equations that folks want to have a serious conversation around before we go out and decide we're going to solve the problems of others. So all of that creates a greater level of depth and complexity and you have to get it right in terms of pausing enough to have integrity, but being honest that sometimes the pauses are going to remove us from being able to act as fast or as effectively on externally focused work as we did in the years when we never had to ask those questions. Yeah, I mean, it sounds in some ways like a really uh, an effort to kind of d- grapple with this legitimacy question, which has always kind of been something that's been a, in the backs of many of the minds of organizational leaders, but something we've not necessarily paused to take on in a very direct way with a sustained dialogue. But it also, I think, raises interesting questions about the places where power may be held may be far distant from the partners you want to have lead on the problem. And so how do you balance this sort of um, the how you show up, as it were, as social movements to places and spaces where power is held and go back to kind of the core theme of your book. How is that going to change the way we all do that and the way transnational NGOs actually sort of manage this kind of transition? So the short answer is understand your legitimacy or lack thereof with some humility. The slightly longer answer is one of the things I get into in the beginning of the book, civil society organizations should start from an understanding that they sit at a point in a triangle that makes them very different from the other two types of institutions that transfer power in the world. There are public institutions that have a public mandate. And what I mean by public institutions is their purpose is public and they have a mandate that comes from the public. That is essentially what state institutions are. They don't have a legitimacy question, an a priori legitimacy question, because they are given a mandate by their publics to do the work they do. So they don't wake up in the morning going like, well, who put us in charge? Because they have an answer to that question. The voters, or if they took power in an authoritarian environment, you know, whatever, the military, but they have a mandate. And then you have private institutions who seek a private purpose. And believe me, corporations don't wake up in the morning and go like, I wonder if we should make profits today. They know what their job is, and they know that they have no public mandate to do so. It's their shareholders who they wake up and feel accountable to, or if they're privately owned, they're probably way too which rel in the sense of the large corporations, not small businesses. But then there's this third group of actors, which is groups that decide it's their job to change the world, and nobody gave them a mandate. They have private power, but they are going to achieve a public good. And guess who that is? That's all of us. 
It's everyone from the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation to your local charity, and it's definitely globally networked movements like Oxfam or Amnesty. Nobody put us in charge, and yet we claim a franchise to go out and change the world and to change power dynamics. So the very first question everybody's asking right now is, where does your legitimacy come from? Who gave you the right to come into my community or my country or my city and tell me that I'm not engaging in human rights or development in the right way? So the first issue is legitimacy. But once you understand that and you decide to stay relevant in a world that's now asking questions about history and colonialization and where you get your power from, the very next thing you do is go on an exercise to be more humble about how you gain some level of credibility and legitimacy in the spaces where you need to work to be useful. So it starts, as you said, in a more concise way, Ray, with a commitment to self-reflection and self-awareness. This is happening at an interesting moment where the civil society in the global South, if I can use that term, is concerned about closing civil society space and sort of the rise of authoritarian regimes and use of sort of new kinds of technologies to surveil, you know, activists and activist activities. How is this context sort of affecting sort of what's going on as well? It's kind of, it's, it's kind of somewhat paradoxical. We're closing civil society space as we're renegotiating how we're going to do this social change exercise. Okay. Here's where I want to sort of make a switch to the other kind of power. A lot of what we've been talking about up to now is trying to get into this idea of sort of power as energy, power as capacity, empowerment. How do we build people movements and how do we know our legitimacy in those movements? And that's really important if you're a development or a movement builder. But the way that I understand the question you just asked is around the other kind of power, the zero-sum control over space, over who gets to talk and who doesn't get to talk. And here's one way of putting the question that you just asked. We are getting our lunch eaten by people who understand this way better than we do. We've been out there playing the benign empowerment game. Let's just get more voices into the mix. Let's get civil society activists empowered. And the authoritarian actors and politicians who, for a while, I would say the 90s and early 2000s were saying, yeah, it's great to have them in our space because they legitimize the veneer of democracy that we're offering, which allows us to get money out of the World Bank and the IMF and have all these donors come and show up at the UN and make nice UNGA speeches about the progress in our country. I lived in Uganda at the turn of the century. This was classic Museveni, right? He was having it every which way. He was the donor darling. He was opening up space. But then what they realized, and I think particularly as this century's sort of reality stuck in, they were like, we don't have to play as nice as these guys. I mean, look at the kind of leaders they have in the United States now, referring back to the recent person who vacated the White House. You don't have to play that nice game anymore. And in fact, what we need to do is shut down their space. Like, let's get rid of them. They're starting to annoy us. They're starting to make demands that aren't making our political or economic lives easier. And there doesn't seem to be any consequences to getting rid of these guys or shutting down their space. And that's what I mean by they are eating our lunch. If you ask most internationally networked organizations who depend on civic space to do their work, what is your plan for making these guys pay for taking away your civic space? We don't have a good answer. We are getting more and more restricted. We're getting shut down. 
from doing the core human rights or activism work that we need to do. And we don't have a good answer on how to take back that space. And I can tell you this, it ain't more workshops. And it's getting more technologically sophisticated. In other words, yeah, the rear square was a celebration of kind of civil society discovering technology to its advantage. But it was also a moment where I think the state discovered that we can get acquainted with that same technology and use it effectively as well. Yeah. And so maybe the tables to some degree have turned. Yeah. For organizations maybe like Oxfam and Amnesty that share a certain history, how are we dealing with this? some of the new movements to stay, stay relevant in a world where anti-racism is a growing force and changing roles for those of us who traditionally held a lot of privilege, white male activists in their middle years being one demographic? How do we navigate those changes at the moment? That's, I think, sort of a whole other new kind of content that's part of the context in which you know you're trying to work out a lot of these issues. Yeah. Well, I think it's only new in the sense that there is an insistence and in uncovering of certain types of privilege that have been experienced in the genesis of these organizations that people want to have a more honest conversation around and want to examine and sometimes dismantle and disrupt. It is changing movement activism. It is one of the most profound conversations that I, I'm witnessing in the amnesty context as we seek to become an organization that is genuinely anti-racist. And obviously that word is an important word because there's a big difference between not being racist in terms of mindset and being genuinely anti-racist. To go through the, the thought process and then the action steps that commit an individual or an organization to the dismantling of racist institutions, practices, behaviors, that is a learning journey for many of us. It remains a learning journey for me. And I believe that committing to that journey and increasingly getting it right is probably going to be one of the most important challenges and opportunities of my tenure there. And I think it's something that will be experienced certainly in the United States. And I think in many Eurocentric organizations as a central priority as we seek to stay relevant in a world that is no longer going to tolerate forms of unexamined privilege and the hypocrisies that go with them. So, Paul, inequality is obviously a central theme of your book, and inequality has many sort of dimensions, and it has a particular kind of look here in the United States, but then it's also now accepted that it's an issue globally. What have you learned about this issue over the last decade as you've worked on it in terms of how we tackle it, what, what its various dimensions are, and so forth? Well, I, one thing, just because I want to get it in there, is one of the rules of movement activism sometimes is, or at least one of the questions is, should we be a little unreasonable or should we be manifestly unreasonable in the demands we make for change? Years ago, Ray, when, when you and I started working on inequality in Oxfam, I think we said, look, our world has gotten so distorted that we don't need incremental change. We need a massive power switch in terms of the ability of a very small number of individuals and corporations to control this much global wealth. And what we were essentially trying to do is not just change small policies here and there, but shift the terms of debate so that instead of people just thinking about poverty as an isolated reality, they were thinking about poverty being caused by too few people holding too much wealth, and that there was a direct connection between the two. And we wanted everybody saying, actually, if you want to solve poverty, you got to deal with inequality. And if you want to deal with inequality, you don't just talk about the poor as now the unequal poor, you talk about those who have too much wealth. And you find a way to do it that doesn't get you put in a box that people stop listening to you. Honestly, I think organizations, and I was very proud of the work that Oxfam did, over those 10 years, 
they did change the terms of debate, along with many others, so that people understand now that extreme economic inequality is deeply unhealthy for our world. And off the back of that kind of reality, there's this term that I use in the book and that I think most activists think about in one way or another, the Overton window, which is the window that a policymaker looks out at and says, what can I get done that the public will tolerate? How much space is there for me to take action now? One of the things that I wrote in the book is Joe Biden is a moderate politician. He is not a massively progressive politician in his instincts or in his history, but he is a good politician. And he will look out whatever Overton window is presented to him and get done what he can get done. And what the job of activists is in this moment in time is to let him know that the Overton window has changed. And if he wants to stay in political power, he needs to address economic inequality. He needs to tax corporations. He needs to tax really wealthy people. And he needs to put in place fundamental economic rights for people who are trying to recover from this pandemic. And I think he has looked out a very different window than he would have looked out without that activism. And I think that's why the power switch is going on in the world is happening. It's why Janet Yellen is talking about a corporate minimum tax. It's why we may finally start to see a reversal in the belief in government to spend taxes on providing basic rights like health, education, and social safety nets. It's happening because activists showed up and said, Joe, you got it, not just Joe, but this Congress and and this White House has got to reverse what's been going on. So when you look at this issue, I mean, it's a complex, multi-layered issue, and I would agree with you. I think the inequality as a term and as a concept that is now, I think, probably somewhat more widely accepted in the media, I think we've succeeded in, in legitimizing the debate about it. To what degree do you think we're going to make progress on the areas that are really critical? In other words, as you look at sort of even the, there's the U.S. version of this, but then there's a kind of the global aspect of this challenge as well. But the U.S. is, I think, somewhat central because our economic, we've been the purveyors of the economic model, as it were, along with the British for this neoliberal economic model, trickle-down economics, if I could put it that way, that has, in some sense, dismantled all sorts of different protections and different sort of mechanisms that were put in place in the 30s during the sort of welfare state era that now are no longer there. So there's a big job of sort of reconstruction that has to happen. You've listed a few things that you think are sort of critical targets, but are we being strategic enough at identifying the sort of the levers that have to be pulled in order for this sort of power switch to occur? Here's a sort of a a human rights lens on what you just said. Maybe this is a little unfair, but I don't think it's that off the mark. In the era, the 80s, I'm thinking of Thatcher and Reagan, when the global economic model got set up, the British and US dominance of global model setting was such that they could basically afford to take a neoliberal slant on civil and political rights and say, all we need to do is protect the freedoms from, open up societies, deregulate, and everything will be fine. And by everything will be fine, they they essentially meant the affluent would do better and more people would get left behind. That model dominated for the next 40 years. But look at the world now. The first thing we know is nobody thinks that the US and the UK getting together to agree on what the global economic model ought to be is that relevant anymore or as relevant as it was, right? There has been a power shift in the world. So in human rights terms, Instead of being able to go back to the world and saying, look, all we care about is civil and political rights. We don't need to care about 
economic and social rights or, or making sure that there are basic safety nets. Instead of that model being out there, we now live in a world where there are very different modes of power, very different holders of power. We live in a multipolar world. The offer that China and others are making to the world is creating a very different set of dynamics. In rights terms, there is no way that you are going to build a global constituency now that doesn't bring together, and this is, I do think, is the offer that the United States perhaps can't lead on, but it can say this is our contribution to, is to recognize that if we are going to have healthy societies now, they have to blend some level of economic and social rights with civil and political rights, that the political compact that allows people to vote peacefully and to exercise that political will to improve their lives, and the economic compact, which gives basic social services into people's hands and taxes the wealthy more effectively, are interdependent. And that offer is a genuine, a genuine alternative to the growth of authoritarianism, to the loss of civil and political freedoms that we're experiencing in many places. But it recognizes that you can't just do civil and political rights on their own anymore. Nobody is going to emerge from this pandemic saying, I don't need food, I don't need jobs, I don't need health care, I don't need education, I just need the right to vote and the right to free speech. And I'm confident that with those two things, I'll be able to ensure my well-being. That was never a great offer, but people were fooled by it in, in 1980. They won't be fooled by it today. So how has COVID changed the perspective on inequality? We still haven't wrestled COVID to the ground. And in some ways, it's kind of hypercharged the discussion about inequality. What do you think we've learned from COVID that we should hold on to? And in some ways, I think it's kind of a subtext in your book that the COVID moment has kind of set the table for a bigger conversation and perhaps the power switch that you've outlined. Lots of people have said this, but it's one of a number of crises that are all converging is perhaps right now the most salient because of how it is tearing our world apart in very explicit ways, both in the United States, we're watching this country torn apart, but as the failure to grapple with how variants will continue to evolve if we don't understand that until everybody is safe, no one is safe. We're seeing the world watch what's going on right now in terms of numbers in Afghanistan and Mongolia and Brazil. What it is doing at some level is is giving us maybe a more explicit currency to understand old truths which is that if you don't understand how economics and politics work together, if you allow unaccountable elites to forget large parts of their population, people will die. And that's magnified that. If you don't have basic public health systems that protect people, people will die. And if you don't understand the relationship between politics and economics, you're going to see societies divide more. COVID is bringing all of that into greater relief. I am an optimist by nature and So I believe that COVID and everything that it's caused is waking people up and we need to use the opportunity of grabbing their attention while they are awake to to deliver the kind of power switch that we've been talking about. One of the things I think that it's been interesting during COVID, we had a lot of sort of attention to essential workers and to workers more generally and to the sacrifices that workers make at all levels of our society. Yeah. Just keep us, keep the lights on and keep food on our tables and basically keep us healthy. In some ways, it kind of underlined a little bit the the idea of agency and the importance of labor and work and people who do work for us day after day. And I wonder to what degree you think this power switch has been empowering, if I can use that word, for labor movements and for labor's voice and for assuming more agency in acting on these particular issues. 
Well, there's certainly something going on in labor organizing, which is really inspiring, whether it's COVID or just the extremes of economic inequality that woke people up to the fact that we need to protect workers' rights, the fact that, yes, essential workers reminded everyone of the fact that somehow those who are most courageous and indispensable to the healthy functioning of our societies often had the least protections. It was also on a global level, you had 2 billion informal workers who had no health insurance, no unemployment insurance, often being forced into lockdowns in authoritarian environments with both the economic but also the political consequences of that. One thing I do fear is that those economic consequences and the political disruption that will result, Colombia is one example, and we're seeing it in more and more places, we are going to see instability as countries fail to emerge fairly from this crisis because workers without unions, without protection, without unemployment support, they're going to have less and less confidence in political processes to get them out of this crisis. And so we can expect what we were seeing right before the pandemic, which is protests all over the world, particularly in Latin America and some parts of Africa, but also in some northern contexts. But we're going to see it everywhere if we don't grapple with the fact that this has been an economic crisis and an inequality crisis as much as it's been a health crisis. In your book, you pose five challenges to activists. You feel they've got to take on the power switch, maybe just as kind of a final question on the book. Perhaps you can sketch out why these five particular challenges that you're posing. Why why these five challenges and why are they important? Ray, I won't give you my answer to all five, but I will focus on the first one. And I I had it even more than that. The first one was a call to activists to remember that in the political crisis that the previous president created, the solution for activists was not just to get another president into the White House, because that was never going to deliver the kind of power switch we needed. What we needed to do was to put enough pressure on President Biden and this new Congress to be far more ambitious in undertaking the kind of power switch that our world needs. It was the ongoing sustained effort of activists to demand that they look out a different Overton window that was going to create the possibility of ending extreme economic inequality. And that job is still with us. I'm going to make a transition now to your new role at Amnesty, although you've been talking about Amnesty through the whole conversation, but I want to I want to just maybe probe a little bit how you're thinking about your new role with the Amnesty International. So you spent 25 late, last 25 years in the field of international development. Now you've moved to into Amnesty, and from a perhaps a risk and opportunities perspective, what's the difference between working in a development organization and a pure advocacy organization? Well, I started out doing human rights work and doing human rights education, and then I was lucky that the moment that I was doing that work international development actors were asking, how might human rights make us stronger? So I've been sort of doing rights-based development most of my life, but it's different to be in an organization that is exclusively focused on advancing human rights and not measuring success in terms of development outcomes. It is different. One of the positives, I'll be a bit provocative here, is that we have different equities as we try to become this sort of globally networked and equally balanced organization around the world, meaning, for example, Amnesty in Kenya is my peer there, is a former Oxfammer who leads an organization there that is just like ours, board, and so on. When I work with Amnesty in Kenya, as opposed to working with Oxfam in Kenya, they don't have a big program on the ground that needs government permission in order to survive. 
they can, when there is a case of human rights abuse or some rights-based issue, they can go straight to an advocacy argument without having to consider other equities. What if we hold the government accountable? What's going to happen to our program? What's going to happen to our relationship with the government? And not to say that they don't treasure and value their ability to influence and shape the policies of the government, but they, they don't have any ambiguity about what they're there to do, which is to speak truth to power and to make sure that they're held accountable. That can be a challenging dynamic for development organizations because they gain a lot of currency by being not political. In fact, have a lot of history coming out of the humanitarian space by saying, we have no politics. We're just here to improve the well-being of people in your society. When you switch from that rhetoric to, oh, and by the way, we're going to hold you accountable because you're not doing enough to protect people in your society, it can create problems in the development world. And we struggled with that sometimes. I was always pushing when my former CEO, Ray Offenizer, and I would often have debates around how you balance the equities. I would often say, but if we were just an advocacy organization, all we would consider is making the case as loudly, as forthrightly, and as powerfully as we could. And you'd say, yes, I want you to do that. But let's remember, we're not just an advocacy organization. We got a lot of things we need to do here. And that was part of the power and joy of being in a rights-based development organization. But it was sometimes a challenge because as an advocate, I didn't get everything we wanted. (laughs) Well, now you understand why. (laughs) So, Paul, how will the logic of power switch inform the work you're going to be doing now at Amnesty? You're obviously taking all that with you. Have you thought a little bit about how it's going to shape Amnesty in some sense? Being at Amnesty has been a remarkable privilege for me. I thought I understood the organization having followed it closely over the years. I didn't understand it as deeply as I thought I did, particularly the power of the membership and how it works in incredible ways to deliver uh, substance and expertise and energy. So it's changed me more honestly, I think, in terms of what I think social justice is about. And I'm, I've talked to my publisher about writing another edition of Power Switch with some of the things I've learned from being at Amnesty about how movement power works and how distributed power works, particularly when you have really interesting histories and demographics in the movement that is a blend of deep and rich histories that have been there and powerfully making a difference right from the beginning of the human rights movement and emergent social movements that are changing how we think about movement activism and how power is exercised in coordinating movement activism. Like it's all going on in Amnesty right now. So I'd love to have the chance to reflect more on how you achieve power switches as I better understand this stuff. At Oxfam, you really were working a lot more on economic, social, and cultural rights than civil and political rights. And now you're at Amnesty, which has had a long history of championing civil and political rights, although it has embraced the economic and social rights issue. But given all of what's going on in terms of the rise of authoritarian regimes and more pressure on political activists and political voice, how do you see that waiting within the kind of way you're going to have to set priorities given the current context? One thing that is clear to me now is that there's less debate in the amnesty movement on the interdependence of civil and political rights on the one hand and economic and social rights on the other, for all sorts of reasons, including growing structural economic inequalities. All the parts of the movement that I've witnessed understand and are embracing and advancing the fact that you actually need to advance both these sets of rights at the same time. Yes, we have a comparative advantage historically 
in civil and political rights. But if we want to be relevant to where social movements are, who are going on the streets because there isn't enough food on the table or their health rights haven't been protected or they can't get back to work, if we want to be relevant, we're going to have to engage in that space. And that's a widely understood thing. What is a debate and is very interesting is that there's an emergent form of rights that perhaps hasn't traditionally been seen in the classic human rights sphere. A lot of it is around where new movements are building power and energy. In the United States, movements around anti-racism, movements that youth are bringing into the equation with work that's happening in the climate space, a recognition that the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, which is as close as Amnesty gets to a, a Bible, for want of a better word, did a very bad job in understanding the different dimensions of gender identity and so on. These, these new movements of political power and energy are transforming even what human rights organizations like Amnesty think of when we think about rights. The challenge and opportunity for us is to do all of these things in ways that complement and expand our relevance and legitimacy and not to find ourselves drawn apart into constituencies that only care about civil and political rights or only care about economic and social rights or only care about these emergent rights. We've got to find the synergies in this equation if we are going to be relied upon by frontline human rights defenders and activists as the most useful global network in defending what they're trying to do. So, Paul, do you see inequality being a, something that's going to be at the heart of Amnesty's work? And given the fact that, and as you've said earlier, that some of that involves not just focus on the, the role of the state as a guarantor of rights for citizens, but also perhaps the impacts of the private sector on, on the exercise of rights or the realization of rights. What do you see different about what Amnesty might be doing today than what it did, say, over the last 20 years? Yeah. I do. And I think our understanding of inequality is going to change deeply and partly because of the way new movements are talking about it. It was the first clause of the Universal Declaration and the second clause talked about non-discrimination. And often when people thought about human rights, they moved straight past clauses one and two and into the sort of first the civil and political rights, right? Article three through 21. And then they said, oh, maybe those other articles later on, 22 on the civil, the economic and social rights, they were the ones that were important. What people are now talking about more is, in a way, they're talking about Articles 1 and 2, inequality or equality, and that all of us are entitled to these rights, and how discrimination actually changes, and discrimination across groups, discrimination across identities, change the enjoyment of all of these rights. Economic inequality is the lens through which many people are coming to understand how power gets distorted. But political inequality and how authoritarians are increasingly undermining the voice expression, the right to protest, the right to assemble and the right to organize, the inequalities of political rights are becoming more evident. I do think that inequality is a lens and a way of understanding rights that is visceral, that is bringing more people into the movement and is helping people to understand that we can only go so far when we work to get more power into the hands of folks who don't have enough, we ultimately have to confront the fact that there are certain actors in the world, political and economic, who have too much power, and we're going to have to take it away. Amnesty is a big family and a complicated family, both domestically and internationally. So what do you think are some of your biggest leadership challenges as you take on this new role? You're embracing all of this, this big family and learning about it from the but, inside. 
That's why I love being at Oxfam and why I love the chance to be at Amnesty. It feels like, in a way like a microcosm of the world that we want. I mean, yesterday I was on a call with directors from Kenya and Brazil and Hong Kong and many of my European and cross Latin America debating like what's going on in our world that we need to grapple with collectively and where sometimes we're going to have to show up as national actors in our own environments. But what can we do when we do it together to have the privilege of being in that conversation and to be a useful actor, hopefully as the American representative in that call, that's the privilege of my life. If you can get it right as a movement that has the capability to work across borders on shared actions, to hold the powerful accountable and to make them pay a price for economic inequality or for shutting down civil space. We're doing something genuinely useful in the world. Maybe as a final question, your, your book, The Power Switch, has a very optimistic, upbeat feel to it. It's a fun read and it conveys a sense that change is possible, I guess. Is that sense of energy and optimism real for you? And is that something that kind of motivates you every day? For sure. I mean, what's the saying? Pessimists are more often right and optimists are usually wrong, but all the great stuff gets done by optimists. <laughs> well, that's a great note to close on, Paul. And so let me once again thank you for being with us today and for discussing your views on activism, inequality, and the possibility of driving real change for the future. I think I've said this to you personally, but I think for the purposes of in a broader distribution, I think you're the right guy for this job at the right coming in at the right time. And we want to wish you every success as you embrace this work and bring this sort of new vision and energy to the job that you've currently got. Thanks, Ray. It was really fun to chat. So for listeners who would like to read more of Paul's work on this topic, you could visit pulte.nd.edu slash O'Brien. Paul's book is entitled Power Switch, How We Can Reverse Extreme Inequality by Paul O'Brien. From Chainsmakers Books. You can find it on Amazon or at your favorite independent bookstore. For more episodes of the Global Pathways podcast, you can visit pulte.nd.edu slash Global Pathways Podcast, where you can stream or subscribe to a variety of different online platforms. Thank you so much for listening today. I'm Ray Offenheiser. I'll see you next time. Additional support for the Global Pathways podcast with Ray Offenheiser comes from the University of Notre Dame's Keough School of Global Affairs, home to the Pulte Institute and other global institutes, centers, and programs. As Notre Dame's first new college or school in nearly a century, the Keough School places development at the heart of global affairs. Learn more at nd.edu slash global affairs.